Hello, and welcome back to Off-Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking about how history is represented through tourism. Specifically, our focus is on the way tourism and amenities catering to the tourism industry represent the history of the Renaissance in Florence, Italy. Florence is often considered the birthplace of the Renaissance, and many of the most famous people, institutions, and works of art associated with the Renaissance are also tied to Florence. The city was, at various times, home to Catherine de' Medici, Leonardo da Vinci, and Michelangelo, to name a few. Today, an important part of the city's identity, not to mention its economy, comes from its connection to the Renaissance. The city houses many museums, pieces of artwork, and buildings that harken back to the Renaissance. But this connection is not something that just appeared naturally. It's something that people, both from the city and elsewhere, have intentionally cultivated over time. To discuss this process more generally, and the role of tourism in it particularly, I'm joined by Graham Sutherland. As a graduate student, Graham has researched both the history of the Renaissance itself and the history of tourists in the modern era seeking to visit Italy for a taste of the Renaissance. Graham has also worked for many years as a professional tour guide in Italy and has taken many visitors around to these sites recalling the Renaissance. So Graham has a ton of expertise both in the history of the Renaissance itself but also its tourist industry, past and present. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm very excited to be joined today by a friend of mine, Graham Sutherland. Graham, welcome. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Graham, would you tell the listeners a bit about yourself, maybe what your your interests and background in history are and is? Uh, Yeah, sure. So as a historian, I, I studied early modern history, mainly kind of social history for, that's like Renaissance era history in Europe. Um, so 15th century 14th century sometimes, really depends. But I've actually spent most of my career as a tour guide working in in tourism in Europe and went back and forth with a master's and then I was in the tourism industry for about eight years before I went back and started the PhD, which is of course where you and I met. And um, during the PhD years, I switched from early modern studies into studying tourism and the history of tourism, especially in the 20th century, and, and the idea of memory and how it's tied up with tourism. So tourism is very much part of what I've been studying, but so is early modern history. Those are my two kind of main interests. Yeah, it's a really fun fusion of topics, I think, and really one that is really engaging to a, you know, a broad audience as well, I think. I hope so. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> So today we're going to be talking about, you know, both some of these, these early modern interests and about your time touring. Specifically, our conversation today is going to talk about your experiences touring and and studying Italy. Particularly, I think we're going to talk a lot about the city of Florence. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about what... The experience of being a tour guide in Italy is like from the experience of, of a historian. Oh, um, working as a tour guide in Italy obviously requires you to have, depending on the, the type of 
travel that people are doing very frequently requires a certain grasp on, on history. And some people really embrace that, and people don't, other people don't. Again, it's up to the style of, of the tourists, really. But history is a big part of what Italy offers its tourists. And certain periods in particular tend to dominate mainly the late medieval period when you have uh, when you have independent city-states across the peninsula as well as the renaissance era which is like arguably the biggest draw for people historically speaking there are some people interested in the fascist era in the 20th century and you know the the like fashion and and whatnot of of rome and the cinema that came out of the the 20th century but for the most part i'd say the renaissance is a is a pretty overwhelming part of um, what brings people to Italy. Right. Yeah, I think, so the Renaissance is what we're going to be talking about mostly today. What sorts of themes in the Renaissance are people interested in? I mean, at a surface level, art Mm -hmm. is just a super easy answer. People are really eager to see paintings, sculptures, architecture. They love just the the kind of excitement of the era as it's taught to us. And so the big city centers in general have a huge romantic allure to them because of kind of a combination of the good old days and tradition, but also this kind of moment of originality, perhaps. I'm thinking like Venice and Florence in particular. Hmm. So talking a little bit about the Renaissance, what is the typical story of the Renaissance for people who maybe don't know a lot about the topic? What that I realize it's a big question to ask. You. I get, listeners can't see Graham's got a, a big grin, uh, but yeah, what what is this typical story of the Renaissance? Okay, I'll I'll try to sum it up. But we talk about for those of you listening, we talk about these questions beforehand a little bit, and when you propose this question, I was like, oh god. <laughs> I, I feel like you're paid i'm like if someone you know came to me and they were like okay can you like briefly explain the 19th century to me Just yeah like, yeah yeah <laughs> it's hard okay so there's like a few layers to the answer obviously the first one is the the i think the one that people tend to carry in their pockets especially when they go to italy um, and especially if you haven't spent uh, an inordinate amount of time studying the topic afterwards, is that the Renaissance is this like watershed moment in human history. If you're not paying attention, or if you are paying attention, maybe Western European or, or like you know Western. And I'm putting air quotes on these words. Like Western history of when people kind of moved out or outgrew the yokes of the church and the feudal system, the the cultural system that we know as feudalism. So that means you have like the individual, I'm trying not to sound sarcastic as I describe this, the individual being freed from these constraints, exercising their skills as God gave it to them, and really just injecting a huge new wave of creativity into a bunch of features of everyday life from business to art. So... It's a, it's a really dynamic moment that some people think really reignited the peninsula and then the rest of Europe with very advanced economics, very advanced cultural practices, and some people even say that it led to the Protestant Reformation and capitalism as we know it. 
just as like two examples. So it's this huge, it's this huge moment of kind of like this burst of freedom also led to the intellectual revolutions of the 18th century, the scientific revolution, like it just goes on and on. The Renaissance is often the birthplace, considered the birthplace of so many of these movements. Right. And very associated with certain, I mean, you mentioned art, right? But sort of like famous pieces of high art, you know, Leonardo da Vinci. Yes. Yeah, the, the individual, and like Leonardo da Vinci is a good example, but the individual, again, is this classic centerpiece to this story. And the reason I say there are layers is because most of the scholarship in the last 20 years on the topic have basically been arguing that it's not about the individual, it's about community. Hmm. And this idea of individuality was only really brought into the equation by historians of the 19th century. Hmm. And it's really more reflective of their priorities than it is of the people of the 15th and 16th centuries. Hmm. So the idea of individuality, which is something that I hope we'll talk about more um, as we go forward, is is more of a historiographical detail than it is a historical one, which is to say that it's more about how we talk about the time period rather than an objective reality of the time period itself. Huh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that, that that's sort of a a tension in the historiography. Yeah. In terms of the city of Florence specifically, which we're focusing on, what is its connection to the Renaissance, or what would you associate with Florence and the Renaissance? (laughs) Again, it's like the birthplace. It's the navel. You know, it's, um, there's a lot of, there's like, I'm, I'm really glad you're not an early modernist because I would just get totally nailed to the wall for, for making any decisive statements about this. But <laughs> Florence is often considered the birthplace of the Renaissance. Okay. And that is mostly because of the sheer amount of money that the city had um, and that was devoted to the things that we now recognize as artifacts of the Renaissance, including art, like Leonardo da Vinci and his works, uh, Michelangelo, Donatello, right. you know, etc. So it's it's this city who had a lot of wealth and who decided to put a substantial amount of that wealth into public works like Brunelleschi's dome, into art, uh, statuary, all kinds of things that we now go and visit and kind of ogle over. There's a lot of reasons to argue that the Renaissance didn't start in Florence, actually, but it has not only been this epicenter in that moment, it was a very dominant cultural place in that time period, but especially in the 19th century, once again, you have this moment to kind of freeze the city in time as a a monument itself to the time period. So it has become this kind of fossil of the Renaissance era. So it's kind of a, a double meaningfulness as far as the association between the Renaissance and the city itself. Right, okay. So we're going to talk a bit about historical memory. We already have a little bit. Historical memory for listeners who might not be familiar with this term sort of means the idea that the, the way we think about an era of history in the present and what we choose to focus on about it, what we choose to ignore about it or forget about it. Is that about right, or is there anything you would add? Yeah, I mean, when I use the term historical memory, I'm referring to our concept of the past as it exists in the present. Mm -hmm. 
So it's very much a reference to the present. It's not actually a reference to the past, right? It's about now. It's about how we think about before. It's also nice because the term memory, we all kind of accept that memory is kind of a fallible feature of the human mind, right? Like it's not a particularly solid entity. It, it shifts and it changes and it has holes and, it, and et cetera. So I like historical memory because it kind of injects this subjectivity into the concept of history, which I feel like a lot of discourse around history, especially now, is missing. But when you talk about historical memory, you're like automatically kind of admitting that it is inherently a subjective thing that you're talking about. Yeah, that makes sense. What are some of the ways that the Renaissance is remembered and commemorated in Florence today? And maybe thinking about when you've taken people on tours in Florence, what are they interested to see? What are they less interested to see? What are the big draws? So on some of the trips I've done to Florence, one of the first things we do when we get there is a walking tour of the city, right? And it's both to orient them in a very practical way, which is just inherently a useful thing to do, but it's also to acquaint them to the historical space that we're occupying and that everyone's usually very excited for. And so, you know, you walk around, you point out the monuments that you know they're going to want to visit, which are mostly museums and art galleries, all of which are both housed in buildings from the early modern period, so either the 15th, the 16th, or 17th centuries, and or they contain artifacts from that time period for the most part. So already you have a huge kind of focus on, on the time period and very much it's being prioritized in their mind as, as something that's okay, that's where that is, I need to go to that. So immediately, it's just that there's so many assumptions being brought into the experience already that like, you know, that, that is already being built up. Mm-hmm. But for a more concrete example, which I really like, and I've started bringing this into my trips, I'm not totally sure that everyone has enjoyed it, but essentially there are still parts of the downtown area of Florence that are quite tightly built together. You know, it's like a very narrow strip of sky above you. There's like five, six stories of of buildings on each side. Streets are tight. You're trying to not be hit by scooters all the time. It's not super convenient or comfortable. And it's actually quite an unusual experience in Florence because most of Florence has a slightly wider, definitely more modern streets than you might find elsewhere um, in the small kind of old city-states. And uh, there's a a feeling that you're walking through an old space. (laughs) However, it's not quite that simple. I used to walk them through the zone and tell them, like, this is a remnant from the 14th century city. Um, you know, this is very much what these places would have looked like. But as I learned more about the topic, I found out that right in the middle of the 19th century, so in the 1860s, Florence was the capital of Italy, which was a new country right around that time. It was a capital city for five or six years. And as it was a capital, it had to deal with this status of representing the country, and it was right at the moment that Houseman was rebuilding Paris, which of course was being done to make the city healthier, to make it more modern, to make the avenues more logical, and, and all this stuff. Like, there's a bunch of fashionable reasons why you'd redo a city. And Florence was in the same position, very kind of congested streets, 
not the best plumbing or no plumbing sometimes. There was still a Jewish ghetto that a lot of people hated for a variety of anti-Semitic reasons. And there's just a, a bunch of tight streets that a lot of people didn't feel lived up to the status of a, of a national capital. And so it was decided to start destroying some buildings, widening streets, creating boulevards along the river for nice vistas, making shopping centers, basically to gussy it up a la Paris, exact same time period. But while they're doing that, a bunch of museum owners or managers, shop owners who were benefiting from the kind of grand tour tourism that was coming through the city, as well as a healthy population of expats, mostly from Britain, kind of watched aghast as all these buildings were being destroyed, because that's what they loved about the city. They loved the, the kind of unmodernness of it all. Hmm. And so they rallied their social connections and their money. They did a, a public campaign to halt the deconstruction. But what they ended up doing is they ended up making a list of buildings that were particularly important to the history of Florence. And this is where it gets super interesting because which time period did they choose to save buildings from? Naturally, it was the Renaissance period. But then they're confronted with an additional problem because you're looking at these buildings and they realize that additions have been made onto them since the early modern period. So an uh, elegant kind of Renaissance era building might have some Baroque flourishes on it. And they decided, listen, we need to save these buildings because they're from the early modern period. That's when the city was famous. That's when the city was important. And so we're going to save this building. We're not going to let it get destroyed. But since we're going through all this effort, why don't we also take off the Baroque stuff and let the early modern shine through so that we can really appreciate for all it is. Sometimes they even go so far as to destroy the building next to it so you can get a better view of that building wow. as you're walking around. So... <laughs> This happens throughout most of the city, and even the part of the city that I, I would bring them to that had this old kind of feel to it, it's true that they maintained the look of the streets more so than elsewhere, especially right next door. They bulldozed this right next to where the ghetto was, and that was obliterated completely, of course. And so the, the difference is really stark, and you're like, wow, this is old, this is new. But even in the old part, you know, they changed the facade. There are before and after pictures where you see the changes they did. And it's not as though these people are incompetent. They were very talented historians that are doing these changes. But from a historical point of view, they're, they're erasing things. Right? So it's complicated. That's really interesting. That reminds me of when I was an undergraduate student and... I traveled to the UK for the first time. I'd never, I guess I, I had been to Europe before. I had not been to the UK before. And I wanted to go see castles, right? And I went to this castle and it had some stuff from the medieval period. It had some stuff from like the early modern period up to like, you know, changes and additions from like the 18th century. <laughs> and I remember visiting this and sort of feeling like I don't want this 18th century stuff in my castle. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I, uh, I just want to see the medieval stuff. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. And I think that there's this sort of strange impulse people have sometimes to feel like 
a place is associated with a particular time period, and that's like the place's true identity or purpose in some way, and those other histories get marginalized, right? And now that I'm further along in my academic career, I sort of look back on how I thought about this castle, and I'm like, well, that's kind of silly. You know, obviously, people continued to use this after the medieval period, and that's part of its history as well, but <sighs> that's, that's not what I was there to see. Yeah, it's hard, though. It's like, so these examples, whether it's this part of Florence or this castle you're talking about, they're really beautiful examples of this concept of historical memory that we're describing. Yeah. Because they're, they become, they very much become these symbols of the ways in which we think about the past and how inherently flawed they are and how inherently like incomplete they end up being. And I think it's one thing that I have a hard time holding, especially in more contemporary issues, is, is that we just want things to be cleaner than that. We want to be able to categorize stuff and for things to have a single purpose. And it's just easier to live. Mm-hmm. It's easier to make sense of the overwhelming world with, with simple categories. So I, I fully understand the impulse to make Florence a Renaissance city. But it also means they like dug up the Roman city center, which was under the Jewish ghetto, and then covered it back up again. So they're like, no, well, it's, this city is not about that. Hmm. It's like there, and there's like a plaque, but that's all there is. Wow. So it's very, it's, I get into, especially with my non-historical friends, I get into so many conversations about what history is at all. And uh, I think the biggest thing I end up having to repeat over and over again is the subjectiveness of it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also think about, you know, you hear this phrase a lot, that certain places have a lot of history to them, right? Like, oh, this place... It, it has so much history. And I sort of think to myself, these days when I hear that phrase, I'm like, which place do you think doesn't have that much history? Yeah, yeah. Like every every place has a lot of history. You just, people just feel like certain, I don't know, there's a historical memory element to this, I think, where people recognize certain histories more than they do others. Yeah, and UNESCO is a great example of what that looks like in bureaucratic form, that, which is a whole other topic. I don't know if we want to go down that one, but like, <laughs> you know, UNESCO has the um, intangible heritage um, category now. Yeah. And that's been, that, that was intentionally because they're like, oh boy, this is a really Eurocentric like definition of heritage and values yeah. and stuff. So we need to break the barriers and, and whatnot. But even with, even with that clause in the category, the overwhelming majority of has, uh, UNESCO heritage sites are monuments, hmm. as in monumental things. Like, we just, we, we can't seem, and by we, I mean, like, the people in charge who tend to be Europeans or North Americans, just can't shake the, the intense devotion we have to big buildings, like, big structures. Right. Yeah, people, people don't want to remember the experiences of marginalized people. So, other than the fact that the artwork and architecture and all this stuff from the Renaissance is really, you know, it's nice, it's pretty, all this stuff. You think it's nice and pretty. Yeah, well, I suppose that's an opinion. I think many people, that's the draw. Yes, Um, it is for me as well. Yeah. Other than that, why why is the city of Florence, like, so obsessed with the Renaissance in particular? Like, what do you, and, and why are people, not just in Florence, but 
you know, tourists visiting Florence? Why are they so drawn to this history of the Renaissance? What do you think it, it means to them? Like, why, why travel from North America to Florence to see all this Renaissance stuff? That's a great question. And also, coincidentally, the, the question of my uh, PhD thesis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, there's um, a bunch of layers to this one, too, because I suppose the question is about now, right? Yeah. And I guess my answer to now is that by today, we've just had so many layers of meaning poured on to, let's say, Florence in particular, that it is almost inevitably, it has become this, like, global destination. Because, like, the first tourists, if you want to, like, the grand tourists from, from England and Germany, for the most part, some of them were from um, Norway, etc., were going down exploring kind of Central and Southern Europe as a part of their education as like young aristocrats. It was very much a part of their value system. It was about learning their place in the world. It was about learning what was good and also learning mm-hmm. like, good taste and whatnot. And that obviously has evolved a lot since then. Um, there's also pilgrims. We can't forget the much older version of tourism that predates the Grand Tour, which is of course the pilgrimage. So there's a lot of things bringing people through the Italian peninsula through Florence or to Florence. More recently, like modern tourism is a very complicated, diverse activity that people are doing for all kinds of reasons. And certainly that original cultural draw of education and status and good taste are very much present still. But now we also have like food tourism, wine tourism we have leisure tourism which is like a a very modern strange thing like just to go to have fun like that wasn't that was definitely happening between the lines in the past even on pilgrimages but now it's like the explicit purpose of a lot of our vacations is just to relax and have fun and indulge so with all of those various time periods florence Places like Florence, Renaissance spaces like Florence, have managed to stay relevant through all of it. And that is partially because it was this legitimate cultural center for hundreds of years, not that long ago, but also because its modern economy, and this is true for the whole Italian peninsula, the modern economy of the space is actually entwined with the the development of Italy as a nation itself. Hmm. It's like modern tourism, like the start of group tours and cheap travel and stuff started in the middle of the 19th century, like 1860s, 1870s, which, as we've already talked about, is right when Italy is unifying. And so there's actually a correlation between group tours and Italy as a country. Interesting. And that means just like more than many other places in the world... Italy is very fine-tuned to be a good tourist destination because they've been doing it for like, you know, 160, 170 years, if not more, if you, if you keep counting the, the other years. So right. this is something that really complicates my work because I'm interested in people who are specifically interested in the Renaissance as a cultural thing, as a, as a cultural event that gives them meaning. But there's a lot of people who only 
vaguely care about the Renaissance, and all they know is that it's a cultured place to go to. So they go. Mm-hmm. I also think there's some sense, right, that certain for certain people, when you visit a certain place, there's certain historic stuff that you feel like you're kind of obligated to do, mm-hmm. which stands out to me. Like if you go to Paris... I went to Paris and I didn't go to the Eiffel Tower. And I had so many questions from people being like, well, you didn't go to the Eiffel Tower, right? Um, and I, you know, I think that this is also part of the experience of Florence, I suspect, is if you're in Florence, you go see the Renaissance stuff. Yeah. Well, like, we're kind of acting out, uh, this is another reason tourism is so fascinating. We're like acting out through our gaze as tourists the values that we're being taught. So hmm. how dare you not pay attention to that enormous monument? Right. We care about enormous monuments in this society. <laughs> you should have gone and looked <laughs> at it. Just like, of course, you should have seen that huge piece of marble that a single man carved that represents a single man. Because you're also a single man. As the ideal <laughs> tourist, as the ideal tourist, especially, you are a white, democratically inclined man. So hmm. how could you not go see the David? It's almost like, will you explode if you don't see the David? Will you? Will your existence end as an existential being if you go don't go see the David? You might. <laughs> They'll probably, you know, ban me from Europe if I don't see the David and I don't see the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> You'll collapse. You'll collapse on a molecular level. <laughs> <laughs> You've also talked to me before, talking a bit about your research, about how the Renaissance and the memory of the Renaissance fits into certain ideas about what you call Western heritage. And you mentioned this earlier. What is this idea of Western heritage and what are some of the issues with looking at history in this way? Oh yeah, it's another one. So heritage is a slippery concept. It's, it's very similar to this historical memory. Yeah in that it is a present is a presentist term. So heritage is the way we think about the past to anchor our identity in the present. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about Western heritage, another another catchword that is thrown around a lot is Western civilization. Right? Western heritage and if Western civilization have been topics talked a lot about in the 19th century and also the 20th century they've shifted as the like colonial regimes of of the that time period kind of collapsed or eroded changed shape and by the time we land in the 20th century um, universities in the u.s especially but also in canada and elsewhere are actually intentionally teaching a definition or a sense of western civilization that is kind of, I don't know, I wouldn't call it the, the climax of this ideology, but it's, a, it's like what we call in academia the Whig, the like Whiggish version of history, which is right. like a progress-defined like march towards better life for everyone, and it's just getting better because we're getting smarter and we're just getting more civilized over time. And just as I've alluded to in the last few minutes, better means more democratic means more white means more male you know like there's a very specific protagonist in this story and it is a white male democratic person Hmm. who is politically active and autonomous and secular 
ideally. In the U.S., there is a, a, you know, obviously a lot of uh, Protestant kind of uh, flavors to this kind of idea, but that really fades in the middle of the, the 20th century in school anyway, and you get this kind of very democratic forward ideology, especially with the world wars and the U.S. stepping into a global stage in a way that it hadn't before and really kind of joining the fray and, and, and kind of coming out on top at the end of World War II. There's a lot of explicit um, references to the fact that they saved Western civilization. We've talked about that. I've, I've talked about it in, in terms of like Life magazine articles and, and stuff. There's a lot of explicit like, you know, now that we've saved Western civilization, like, where are we going as the leader of this civilization and stuff like that? Hmm. So the stuff that gets me in that, in that kind of story of our past is the role of the individual. It's the role of the, the male democratic individual in particular. And it's things like the David, the ways that we talk about the Medici bank, for example, as being this forerunner to capitalism as if it's a good thing as if this like liberation of the individual is still this thing that we're just like, thank God that happened. That was the, that was the start of something great that we're still profiting from now. It's like, well, actually a didn't really happen like that. And B, if you, if you look at, I think I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but the, the individualness and the, the narrow scope of who is really considered when you talk about the story of Western civilization and Western heritage right. has a lot of shadows that do a lot of harm if they're propagated. And I think a lot of what we teach in tourism, unfortunately, is, is propagating some of those stories or ideologies, if you would say. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I do think, yeah, in a lot of ways, the idea of Western heritage is trying to like define like uh, often by academics, but also by other people in society an attempt to like define the sort of white culture mm -hmm. and identify it as great and then sort of distill what it thinks is great about it. And so it has these sort of racist assumptions to it and as well as, you know, many other issues that you've highlighted. I think if we, if the, the, you know, colonial and post-colonial countries still dominated by like the Anglo-Saxon like colonies and whatnot, so I'm thinking specifically the UK, Canada, the US, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, mm -hmm. obviously not just restricted to them, but if they weren't still so thoroughly racist and violent, I would have less of a problem with this form of tourism but since the inherent racism that is still existing in these countries is not yet acknowledged properly, I have, I have a problem with us just blindly, you know, consuming things that prop up these beliefs. And it like, when you see Islamophobia in the media, for example, especially, or when you hear other people talking about it, it tends to be, or it often sounds, like these people, quote unquote, are too insular, too religious, too communal, not integrating. You know, like all of these words that when I was listening to these guys talk about the David and I was reflecting on what I was talking about the David, 
I'm like, these are the opposites. I'm like, this is an individual who is shedding the yoke of the church, being secular, being creative. You know, it's it, it just seemed like to use a, a term that we use kind of in academia, which is you know the best one, but to fetishize this idea of an individual so intensely, and even in our leisure time, it makes it so much easier to then go back and see someone who is labeled as too insular as being unlike me. Hmm. You know, like, it just, it makes the whole individualism thing in our life seem like a really defining part of who we are. And it's just not true. You know, it's, it's like a recent development in how our society works and how our cultures work, but it's not a, it's not a defining element of who we are. It's something that we've become obsessed with over the last 150 years or so. And like, it's just sad to see the ways in which this dialogue about the Renaissance, the way it feeds into this whole idea of Western civilization, Western heritage of like, you have to be secular, democratic, white, ideally, and then you fit in. Right. The, so the way the Renaissance is remembered is not just sort of about the Renaissance, but it's also about identifying who in the world is being perceived as like enlightened or whatever, and which cultures are seen as bad. And inevitably, it's, it tends to be racialized cultures that are perceived as bad. Yeah, and it's just, it's just a way that we demarcate who's in, who's out. Right. Which, like, we do that in so many ways. This is not the only one. But I think it, it annoys me. I think it's because I was blind to it myself for a long time that this is one of those things. Hmm. The, the way that we think about our past is one of those things. The way we um, love Italy might be one of those hmm. things. Hmm. So, shifting gears a little bit, changing topics a little, but still related, a lot of what people are interested and what you take people to see in Florence, it sounds like, is, you know, sort of statues, artwork, so forth. What are your thoughts on what the meaning of these are from a historical perspective? What does a, what does a statue say about history? And I know there's obviously been a lot of discussion about, mm-hmm. you know, statues in history. What are your thoughts on it from someone who has, you know, led these tours and studied the Renaissance? Oh, it's such a good question. So... I suppose my, as far as like, yeah, how do I say this? I guess my my impulse when I think about our relationship with art, statues, architecture, whatever it might be, is that it's not fair to put all the onus of analysis on the viewer. Hmm. We tend to really focus on how we think about the statues and what our personal stance is towards these statues. There's some debate about what the statue is saying, um, not nearly as much, which is fascinating. That might be the whole individualism thing coming in again. But for me, the interesting thing is the dialogue between both. You have to like view them together. And to do that, you have to acknowledge that the statue is speaking just as much as the viewer or like they're kind of analyzing each other in a way and uh, what I mean by that is if we go back to the example of Florence 
the cityscape itself has been designed in a very specific moment of time, you know, the late 19th century, which is, by the way, when some very famous works, academic books, came out on the Renaissance, so you can really, like, dial into exactly what people are thinking about the time period had been. The cityscape is shaped, literally shaped, to fit what people viewed as the ideal version of the Renaissance in that moment. So if you were then to go to Florence and just say, like, hey, what do you think of Florence? What do you think of the Renaissance? What do you think of the city? They can analyze all day long, and it's interesting and valuable to hear their analysis, but they're being set up as well. Right. You know, like, the context in which they're operating is totally pre-shaped. It doesn't determine everything, but it's pre-shaped. So my attitude towards statues and art and, and, you know, buildings that are historically significant, although, like, what the hell is that, is that I'd like to see more acknowledgement and discussion about the context of the statue, the piece of art, the building itself, as part of the analysis of what's going on. It's not just about what the viewer thinks, it's also about what was intended with that original thing, whatever it might be. And yeah, I guess in the, with the example of something like the Renaissance or with Florence, many of the stuff that is deemed not renaissance enough was done away with. I assume people have <laughs> saved, have saved what they deemed like the prettiest, most wonderful works of art from the Renaissance, but then stuff belonging to poor people, artwork that was deemed not so nice was sort of got rid of. And so we're getting a very a very particular view of the Renaissance. Yeah, not only not only what has survived, but what has survived and been curated. Yeah. Cause then you get into the question of like placement. Is it inside? Is it outside? Do you have to pay to go see it? Hmm. Is it in the middle of a square? Is it on the side of a square? Is it in front of a government building? Is it just in a public park? Like in, in Florence, as in many other places in Europe, where you have artwork that is hundreds of years old and still surviving kind of as it was built, you then get the complicated question of, like, well, why was it originally built? Why was it originally painted and done? And then who moved it? Where? Why? Where was it originally? Like, the whole idea of museums requires a ton of, of analytical energy to understand, like, how those things got there. Right. And I think... Some people are aware of it, and I feel like that tends to be academics and whatnot, but I very much think, especially when it comes to things like the more contemporary discussions about, about historical statues in Canada, say we need to be more upfront about who built these things, when, why they were put there, because without those contexts, it just feels like we're blaming the people who are upset for being upset for being noisy or something. I don't know. Like, we need to give proper attention to why they were built. Upset for very legitimate reasons, and yeah. So, we've talked a bit about some of the, the challenges of historical tourism. Some of the things that can be maybe misleading about historical tourism. You know, people kind of want to... Sometimes people want to hear the story they almost expect to hear when they come. Definitely. Stories that are more challenging to that are sometimes hard to get across, it sounds like. 
Do you think there are any strengths of tourism as a way to teach history, like as a as a way of engaging the public in history, as an alternative to you know books, lectures, that sort of thing? Oh, I mean, yeah, definitely. I think it'd be nice if it were taken more seriously as a as a space for public history. Yeah, but it's hard though because the way our economy is built is often, for example, tip based. And you're not going to antagonize your groups with uncomfortable facts if you need to live off their tip money. Right, that's a good point. You know, like it's just a really complicated uh, relationship that tourist professionals have with their clients. So some companies, including some that I've worked for, don't allow tips for that very reason. And it's mm. it's very liberating, but you also risk making less money. And it's, a, it's like a hard decision to make as someone who needs money. But I think... There are a lot of, there are just as many opportunities to be had in teaching history and tourism as there are like potholes or like blind spots. Have you heard the term mimetic realism? Probably from you before, <laughs> uh, but I don't remember what it means. Uh, I can barely grasp what it means, but essentially it's, <laughs> it's, the, it's the idea that like a thing that you're looking at is what it claims to be. Okay. That, like, you can learn about reality through artifacts, hmm. right? And unfortunately, a lot of tourism, for a lot of legitimate reasons, a lack of time, a lack of interest, whatever, and a lack of job security, people just rely on, like, this is a painting. This is a great painting. Look how nice it is. And it's here, and it's important. And everyone's like, wow, that's great. And then you move on. Sometimes there's not even a problem with that because just the sheer act of enjoying a painting is a healing and relaxing event. And if it's nothing more than that, like, there's nothing wrong. But as far as engaging in history in a critical way, it's, it's nice and I've enjoyed and I've seen other guides push beyond that frontier to ask the questions that we've been talking about, which is, you know, you can talk, some guides even will do the whole like, this is a painting, look how pretty it is, look how, like, meaningful it is, and, like, look how expensive and important it is, because it's in this very kind of high-end museum. Uh, but then they're, like, pointing out, uh, I kind of don't like this term, but behind-the-scenes elements of the painting, like, see all these blues that were used. That was an incredibly diff difficult color to paint, and it was done by a banker, and that banker was legitimately showing off not only the wealth, but also the products that they had to sell, which included this dye. Interesting. And so you you end up talking about it as kind of a marketing tool, as a as a way to as a way to uh, the same can be said about fashion and um, women's fashion in particular in the early modern period. A big kind of event is made out of a wedding, and you're you're showing off your family's wealth through the, the materials that you're kind of weaving and hanging on your, your daughter, essentially. Hmm. So there's all these, all these things to talk about that go beyond the, the, the simple kind of like execution of a piece of art or the, the value of it. And some of them can be really uncomfortable, frankly, because then you start thinking like, well, this woman is essentially a coat rack then she's like an advertising tool. And it's like, yeah, hmm. uh, in some cases that's what was happening. And then that opens up a conversation about like, you know, a lot of issues around gender and stuff that 
it's nice to it's nice to push back as nice as possible to push back against the automatic assumptions we can have when we see a painting or a statue or a building. And guides can do it, but it takes time. It takes the education to talk about it. it. Doesn't have to be formal education, but like you have to do your research. And there's a lot of I don't know. There's a lot of fascinating stuff. Like when I'm in Rome, there's um. A site that's being worked on right now, which is like an old mausoleum right in the center of the city, that was initially designed as a as a fascist project. It's like Augustus's mausoleum. Uh, Mussolini wanted to kind of gussy it up again, surround it in nice Art Deco fascist buildings, and make it kind of this mm-hmm. retriumphant kind of imperial thing. Very on brand for Mussolini to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't quite finish it. The mausoleum's not done yet, but the building is surrounded on three sides by these like stunning art deco buildings with a bunch of his like propaganda etched into the walls. Mm. And it's very easy to just walk around that neighborhood and be like, these are cool buildings. And this is a nice space to sit and have a spritz and then just hang out. But if you look up and actually start reading the huge block letters in the wall, you read like make Italy great again. It actually says that. Wow. You know, and so I'll walk past with my, with my like, on this occasion, American group, and look up, and I'll just translate the, the inscriptions. Be like, you know, this. It's easy to experience the space as something that's like, oh, it's been historically kind of preserved and and cared for, and it's so cool because we love Roman history and it's interesting. It's like, but he was also doing this to legitimize the fascist regime. Mm-hmm which nowadays we're quite uncomfortable with. And like, to me, that discomfort is healthy. I think this also requires, and I don't know, this, I don't have an easy answer for how you make this change, right? But it also requires some willingness on the part of tourists to have a more challenging experience. Yeah. And I suspect you know, I, I used to give, this is not, nowhere near what you did, but I used to give, like, tours of the university campus yeah. uh, when I was an undergrad, yeah. right? And I think there are, there are some people who have these, you know, do tourist stuff wanting to, like, learn. And there are some people who just want to, like, have a relaxing and unchallenging time. Absolutely. And I think, I think that... If you're, you know, learning about history, like history is not, history is not just always going to be relaxing stuff. It's, it's rarely is actually. Right. And so I think people need to like have a, have a willingness coming in to learn something that might be challenging to them. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the, one of the big challenges is that ultimately it's a voluntary activity. Yeah. You would hope. And for me, the, the important thing is that you're just transparent with the kind of experience you're going to be giving people. And that's, again, where the, the tip issue really comes in. Because if you're reliant on, on pleasing these people as soon as you detect certain beliefs in them, like, you, you won't challenge them. And that's smart. You shouldn't challenge them, right? It's just, like, good business. And these people have paid for a vacation. And so they should get the vacation they're looking for as far as possible without hurting anyone. So... Hmm. You know, people's preferences in their vacations do matter. They're extremely important. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to advocate, like, everyone has to be made uncomfortable by history when they travel. It's like, no, but I wish there was more of an appetite 
for it. And maybe there will be more of an appetite, perhaps in the younger generations that have a bit more of a plastic uh, understanding of what of what history is and what it looks like. And just maybe more of a low bar of of certain time periods of not, you know, like a lot of people don't want to hear about the slave mines of the Roman Empire, for example, stuff like that. Like, they just want to be excited. This reminds me of, I remember once I was visiting this old plantation in South Carolina, and we went to this plantation because it's one of the very few where there's still surviving cabins that enslaved people lived in. Um, oh, and so there's this sort of like big, big, fancy, like big house, right? The sort of where the slaveholders family lived. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole focus of the experience there. And my girlfriend and I were interested in these cabins and we're sort of asking them about that and it's really like not the focus of the experience if you do the tour they just take you to the big house and then it's like yeah if you want i guess you could go over and see that other stuff but Mm -hmm. most of the people don't they just want to go see the big beautiful house and they don't care about the history of slavery the history of enslaved people and i think this is you know one of these things where like partly the guides at this historic site could make, the, not that, again, not to take this too much away from the Renaissance, which is the focus of the episode, but partly, you know, the guides could make this more of a focus of the experience of the site. Partly also, the people coming to this site, it would be valuable if they had more of an interest in things that are not just like, look at the big, fancy, pretty thing. Yeah. There is, um, there is an anthropological project done in 1997 or published in 1997 about colonial williamsburg Hmm. that very much analyzes like how is history told in this setting and one of the conclusions from the book is that the the corporate structure that that defines the power dynamics of that as a workspace kind of prohibit this challenge in history from being told to a certain degree and so it's like never as simple as the guides adopting a new stance. There are so many concerns coming in, especially as, as soon as it's a public corporation. But yeah, it's, it's hard because I, I feel like in this moment, as we're being faced with so many, so much evidence of the violence of countries like Canada, and just like colonial systems were continue, continue to, to get evidence kind of stacked up. I personally feel like there's value and almost an obligation to bear witness. Hmm. Like if you're going to have a historical site um, with tourists, should it be an obligation to spend some time dwelling on the violence that essentially propped up the success of these spaces? There is one example in Florence of a hospital that's like kind of reputed to be one of the first Renaissance buildings in the city. It's the Hospital of the Innocents. It's like a foundling hospital. So it's where you'd go if you had a baby and you didn't or weren't able to keep it. Usually 
It's because your family system was failing and couldn't take care of it. They'd drop it off in a little turnstile, spin it, and the nuns would pick up the baby and, and they would kind of be raised and put to work as weavers for the most part. The women and the girls were made to be weavers. The boys were kind of farmed out to the city and, and made to work with the goal eventually of marrying them off so they don't become prostitutes and of the boys of getting them into a craft somewhere. And this very beautiful building has been turned partially into a museum dedicated to the foundlings. And they do a beautiful job of like showcasing how little information we have about so many of them. They're just like snippets here and there. And they do, they do a pretty good job of kind of like demonstrating just how barely existent they are on the historical record. And you can kind of infer from that that there is some darkness, you know, built in to what's happening here. But then the rest of the museum, it's an art gallery. A very charming, very nice art gallery full of like really nice pieces of art. And it's just very pleasant. There's a cafe at the top. I highly recommend it as a place to go in Florence. But the truth is that there are a lot of foundlings who entered that facility and who probably didn't survive the process of this like very early kind of institutionalization of marginalized children. And there's just no records of it. And especially for Canada right now, like, does that ring a bell to you? A <laughs> bunch of young children not being accounted for? Like, there is a real dark strain in the history of these institutions and our, our history towards people we deem to be marginal um, that I would like to see more on that in, that in that museum. And I haven't been in a few years, so maybe they've added it, but I feel as though... We hopefully we'll get to a point where that kind of treatment of a topic will be to a certain degree obligatory. Right. Maybe people won't go to that part of the museum. You can't force them to, but it should be there as an option to see. Mm. Graham, this has been really interesting. Kind of a bleak. We've got kind of a bleak ending. Yeah, there. A bleak <laughs> ending for sure. Do you uh, do you have anything else you want to add that we didn't get to? I've I've sort of gone through all my questions here. Did you have anything that we didn't? get to that you wanted to mention no i don't think so i could i could talk about this stuff forever it's really nice to talk about it in some detail i'm happy to suggest some books there's a few on on italy that focus on this moment in florence of the rebuilding that's really cool by an author named medina lasansky um, she then wrote a whole book on what the fascists did on top of that layer hmm. and that's very much if anyone who's listening has been to italy during the uh during the like recreations so it's like a crossbow kind of competition or like a tug of war or uh, like a, a wine cart being dragged around the city and all that a lot of these recreations from the fascist era and they were trying to just like get morale up oh wow but, like look at look at our history we're proud people and so a lot of really interesting work has been done by that my favorite is by Medina Lasansky so I'll pass those names down and maybe also that book on Colonial Williamsburg so that's a big one Cool. Yeah, I'll put those in the uh, description for the episode, the, the full title and stuff for people who are interested. All right, well, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Yeah, man, it was my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. That's all for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed. Thanks to Graham for joining me on the show, and thanks to you all for listening. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, I'll include the full titles of the books Graham mentioned in the episode description. Artwork for the podcast was made by Nathcaria, and music was made by Nella Ruiz. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or tell your friends about the show. Stuff like that really helps grow the audience. And if you're not enjoying the podcast, I guess you can do that stuff too if you really want. Also, I post some historical images related to each episode on Instagram and Facebook. So if you want to see those, be sure to follow the show there. If you're a fellow historian who'd like to be on the podcast, shoot me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com as I'm looking to line up future guests. I'd also love to hear other people's comments on the show as well. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time for some more off-campus history. Oh,